Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I'm coming at you live today uh, from the locker room app recording this. Um, I have some really great questions to attend to in a mailbag. Before we even get started with that, I want to hit on a couple of things, just uh, looking at like a statistical dive of um, this team since the All-Star break. Uh, I got a, a really great idea from a, from a pod listener, Spree Goose, one of the OGs on, uh, on IC, to, to start looking into things that are different from last year. Looking at doing that around this weekend, but that makes me want to start giving more of a sense of where guys are at uh, over the course of time, um, just so we, we you know, I, I think... I, I check these numbers like every day, so I, I don't even think about sharing it sometimes. I just kind of it, – it's second nature for me. Um, so I I want to start just like trying to process and show you guys, all right, this is what I'm looking at. This is how I'm seeing things. This is the numbers that I'm basing what I'm doing off of. Um, so just to give you guys perspective, this is what I want to talk about really quick, looking at how the team is performing since, uh, since the All-Star break, and that's just looking at uh, individual players as well as the team players. Um, and mostly for the fact that, that Karis LeVert is back since then, uh, that makes obviously quite a big impact in terms of um, how everything is going. You know, I've talked a ton about how his length has changed things a little bit defensively. Um, his gravity has made an impact offensively, obviously. Um, and most importantly, I mean, just having him there, his, his gravity is huge. Uh, his ball handling is huge. Like, um, he's not playing super well individually, like not even that he's playing poorly. I think that's been a little bit overblown. The shot hasn't been there. Um, but when he is able to really get going, um, in a, uh, gosh, when he's able to really get going to the rim, like we saw, I think the game against Detroit was probably his best game. Uh, I think stats wise and just more importantly, how he was playing. I mean, he was getting to the rim a ton in that game and that was huge. And, and that's a, something that was always on my radar looking at you know, how he's getting to the rim, how he's performing. Um, is he taking a lot of shots there? Um, is he pulling up a lot? Because that was an issue for him in Brooklyn. He pulled up a ton instead of getting all the way to the rim. And not that that's always a bad thing, but just looking uh, looking at that is going to be important. So starting off with the team. So since March 11th, this team is 5-5, five and five, which is actually 15th in the NBA, so literally average. Um, they're 13th in offense and 16th in defense. 
And I don't want to say that that's like a mirage with the defense because I do think the defense has been a little bit better recently, um, even though the numbers don't necessarily indicate that. I mean, part of that, uh, the Milwaukee game did not help. Um, so that that certainly factors in. But I think the biggest thing is looking at how the offense has improved. Um, that would That's something that sticks out to me right away in, in talking about what has been different and looking at how, uh, how, how things have changed up on that end. Um, they are still checking really quick. They're still first in the league in, oh no, they are actually second in the league in rim attempts now as Zion Williamson, uh, and the New Orleans Pelicans have taken over the first spot. I don't know how much you guys have followed with what Zion is doing in New Orleans. It is absolutely insane. Uh, he's shooting like 72% at the rim right now. Um, just ridiculous. Uh, he's been an insanely fun watch. Uh, New Orleans is still just not that good of a team, but Zion is awesome. Uh, I, I'm That's going to be a scary team once they actually put things together. Um, but the Pacers are second in location effective field goal percentage. So what that means, um, if you just took every, every shot you took in a game, if it was on league average shooting, um, what would your field goal percentage be? So that means the Pacers have the second most efficient shot profile based on just looking at the four factors. So getting to the rim a ton, they're only 19th in three-point attempts right now, which is like – I think that's fine because so much of what they do is derived off of getting to the rim. And a lot of times when they take uh, – you know, when they're taking like way more threes than, than average, so they're normally taking like around 30-ish threes per game. I think it's just below like 27 or 28. Um, when they start taking upper 30s, close to 43s, those are the games where they just can't get to the rim. And it's not normally great for them to to have that kind of game. Um so that, that's something that stands out to me as well. Uh, another thing, I don't remember if I mentioned this on a pod, but uh, the Pacers over this recent stretch of playing pretty well, um, they're first in the league by a wide margin in corner three-point shooting. They're shooting almost 50% from the corners, which is like, just to give you a perspective, um, like I think average from the corners right now is about 40%. So like the 15th ranked team in the league right now shooting 39%. You have four or five teams all shooting 39% from the corners right now. That has been money for them. And a lot of that has been off the rim pressure from having Karras back. So uh, just another thing that, that you can look at and say, okay, hey, this, this stuff is changing. Um, so looking at the players themselves, Malcolm Brogdon has been absolutely ridiculous during this nine-game stretch um, since the All-Star break. Uh, it would be 10, but obviously he missed a game. Um 23 points per game, five boards, five assists, uh, two and a half turnovers, so solid assist to turnover ratio. But 53% from the field, 52% from three on almost eight a game. Um, I've talked about this a little bit, but Malcolm getting the off-ball looks that he's been getting has been huge. Uh, like, he's just taking much easier shots for him. Like, And I think that is a really important thing to highlight. Like, Malcolm – uh, as much as Domas takes a, a lot of tough shots too, like I think the shots that Malcolm has been tasked with taking are um, significantly harder to a, to a degree. You know, he's, he was asked with taking a lot of off the dribble threes and a ton of stuff off the dribble and mid range. He's, he's good at the off dribble mid range shots to be completely fair. Um, but in terms of what he's doing, um, you know, looking at just not having to take as many of those getting wide open catch and shoot things like that's huge. Um, so before this, this this stretch of 10 games, Malcolm had taken 20 corner threes in like 30, almost 33 games. Yeah, so in 33 games, Malcolm had taken 20 corner threes. And in the 10, 10 games since, I mean, nine games since, 
Um, he's taken 13. And he shoots, I mean, obviously, Malcolm's a lights out shooter. He's shooting 52% from the corners this year. That's something that's really stood out and that I've liked because he's getting a ton off of Karras' actions. Um, since that date, hold on a second, I'm pulling it up again. Since March 11th, Malcolm is. So just on the year, Malcolm's shooting 52% at the rim, which is bad. That's where he was at last year. That's um, like bottom quarter percent of, of combo guards and wings in the league. So not a good finishing rate. Um, but since March 11th, if my computer wants to, yeah, Malcolm is finishing 66% at the rim. And a lot of that is just getting easier shots. Like he's not being like, he's, he's getting stuff off cuts. He's getting stuff off um, just getting easier drives to the rim because less guys can condense down and, and force him into tougher shots. And also he's just been finishing better as well. Like I think part of it's just statistical um, regression to the norm, like him being better there. Um I'm interested to see how that kind of uh, extrapolates over some time um, because him finishing at the rim like this is, is very important to his, A, his overall ability. B, I mean, he can get fouled more if he's going to be able to finish at the rim like this. Um, I really think he's going to be more like around like a 60% rim finisher, like ideally, um, because I don't think he's going to be a 66% rim finisher long-term. Like that's, uh, I mean, that's, not TJ Warren level. That's like a level below him. TJ was insane at the rim last year. Um, but point being, like Malcolm's true shooting over the stretch has been astronomical compared to where he was at. So as much as Karras has struggled, and we'll talk about Karras right now, um, what Karras has done to open up for everyone else on the team just like cannot be overstated. Um, Domas has been a lot better. Actually, I said I'd talk about Karras. So Karras, uh, 15 points per game on 37% from the field and 32% from three. Not good, um, just to be frank. Uh, but I think a lot gets overblown in talking about the shooting right now. Cause I think the shooting is going to come with time. Um, I really do think that, uh, I'm not super worried about it. He's been a fairly, not like the most efficient player, but I think in the offense and how things are going to flow, I'm not really too worried about him. Um, I, again, as I pointed out earlier, I'm really interested to see how things work with him getting to the rim more. Um, cause he can create a lot of rim pressure. He's really good at finding guys. Once he gets inside, he's already developed a pretty nice two-man game with Domas that I've really enjoyed watching um, and I think is going to continue to blossom and grow quite a bit. Uh, but, again, like, hold on, I'm pulling it up right now. Um, it just the, the getting to the rim is the important part because he's – yeah, so he shoots okay at the rim. He's shooting 56% at the rim, which isn't great, but, like, it, compared to Malcolm, fantastic. Um, he was shooting way better earlier in Brooklyn this year, though, to just, just to be fair. Overall, like, I mean, he's just not – fully back yet like he's struggling from all areas of the floor because he's still trying to get his legs under him he's played nine games since missing almost two months with freaking cancer so I'm, I'm i'm not really super enthralled with people who are getting on him for not being the most efficient or saying that they're not impressed with him like i don't know what you're expecting like the dude had him i mean he, he was cut open had a mass removed off his kidney and did not participate in basketball activity activities for like a month and a half like no shit he's not playing well um, and I, I still, again, I think he's been playing fine. Um, he's he's definitely had poor games. But point being, he's taken 32 shots at the rim in nine games compared to 48 mid-range shots and 51 threes. And it's not even about that that necessarily makes a difference. But it's more like I want him to get to the rim more and have more of those finishes because I think, like, we've, we, we've talked about with just looking at this team in general, like, their whole – whole system is built on getting to the rim 
Um, and when they get to the rim, it's effective. And when they don't, they just don't get the same kind of motion and movement off the ball that they need. They don't get the same kind of open shots that they're looking for. Um, so getting Karras to, to be more comfortable and getting to the rim is going to be huge in watching uh, over the remaining stretch of the season for sure. Um, next player I want to talk about, Domas has been pretty good. His, uh, his scoring numbers are down, but he's been efficient. I mean, 53% from the floor. We don't want to talk about the three ball. Um, he's shooting 19% on two attempts per game in the last uh, 10 games. I'm just – I I don't want him to not shoot threes, but I – like some of the threes that are earlier in the shot clock, I don't love. But it's a tough balance because he's wide open on them, and you want him to be able to punish uh, teams on those. And he had that really hot stretch where he looked good from three. He doesn't look unconfident taking them. Um, but they just feel rushed sometimes. Like I feel like the um, sometimes it just feels like he puts way too much on them, and and you tend to see that because he's hitting the back of the rim or he's hitting the backboard. Um, and it's not like it's an ugly shot. I wouldn't go that far, but um, they don't feel super in rhythm. And they I, again, I don't want to say that they derail the offense, but it just they're not awesome. Um, I don't know what the answer is to him in taking some of those shots. I. Part of me kind of wishes that he would take some more mid-rangers um, just because he was so good from there last year. And comically enough, he's been pretty awful for mid-range this year. Part of it's like he's just not taking a lot of them. Um, but also, like, I mean, he shot 46% from uh, 14 feet to, to the arc last year, which was really good, especially for a big. Like, that's good enough where teams, like, they would sag off him. But, like, you can punish people doing that. Shooting 27% from that distance this year, again, much less volume, um, but would like to maybe see him mix in just some more of those. I, I don't think it would hurt anything. Um, again, that's something I'd have to look into more, but it's it, I've definitely thought about it. I also would really like to see him get more corner threes, but again, it's tough because if he misses from the corner, then it's way tougher for him to get back in transition. So I know that's an an aspect that always gets talked about with big shooting. Like, um, like that's why Nikola Vucevic never takes corner threes. All of his threes are from above the break. Maybe it'll change in Chicago, but because Vooch is so slow, I mean, even compared to Domas, Domas is actually pretty quick on his feet for his size. But, like, um, I mean, Nikola Vucevic takes everything above the break, and he's awesome at it. But even though the corner is a much easier shot, like, if you're out of position, like, I mean, having that extra 20 feet to 15 feet to get back on defense is a huge, huge impact, especially if you miss your shot. But again, would like to see Domas get more corner looks. Maybe you can scheme that in somehow. Um, but ultimately, he's been great. He's getting in the line six times a game, uh, 12 boards, six and a half assists. And I mean, I know he's turning the ball over a lot. And another thing I wanted to bring up today before we even get to questions, like um, people keep bringing up the him – in transition. And I get that sometimes it can be not pretty, but overall, I mean, a lot of good things come out of Domas running in transition, like um, that you don't necessarily think about just in terms of when you're watching a game, like you, you see a turnover happen and that's the thing that sticks out in your head. But like, I think it's important to know too, like if he gets back in transition, I mean, gets up in transition with the ball that puts a ton of pressure on the defense. It makes it easier for cross matches to happen. Um, maybe you can set some early offense stuff up. And more importantly, it's just good to get him those reps. Like, I, I like it. I don't have anything wrong with it. I do wish sometimes, like, he would maybe slow down with it a little bit because he can get going downhill and that that's where some of the turnovers occur. But 
all in all, I've been really impressed with Domas this month. Uh, he, again, he's not scoring quite at the same rate. He still has been really good. I actually think his defense has been really solid too. He's leading the team in steals over that stretch. As you know, it's been noted that TJ McConnell's leading the league in steals or right around there. Uh, Domas is averaging almost two steals a game in the last uh, almost month of basketball in the last 10 games. He's been really active. He's been good at jumping passing lanes. His hands have just been really active. Um, I've been impressed with him. And again, still not a great defender, mostly just because he's in a role that's not a great context for him. But um, all in all, I've really enjoyed Domas this month. Just to do a couple more quick hitters uh, on the players. Doug McDermott's been fantastic. The three has been there. He uh, has just been lights out. I mean, 56-43-90 splits on uh, nine games this month. That's uh, that's pretty good. Justin Holiday has really struggled shooting wise, uh, 35% from the floor and from three, which is way low for him. Part of that's just a really tough shooting stretch overall. And I think that'll turn around, um, but not a great month for him. Uh, Jeremy Lamb, pretty much in the same boat as Justin, but is shooting worse and doesn't contribute a lot defensively. So that's been a, a rough stretch for him. But Edmund Sumner, yeah, almost 50-40-90 as well. Like, Ed has just been so impressive. And I'll, I'll wait to talk more about him because I know one of my questions is on him. Um, but he's just been impressive. Uh, actually, other than Malcolm, he's the second leading three-point shooter on the team right now, albeit on low volume. But I'm going to ride that high until the day I die. Um, it's just awesome to see him playing. Goga is the other guy I want to talk about uh, before I talk about my last player and we move on to questions. Goga has been Fantastic. Uh, I tweeted this out during the game against the Wizards. I mean, he's a legit rotation player now. Um, Like, there's no way to warrant him not playing. Um, Even with two other bigs on the roster, he's been a legitimately impactful rim protector. He still has his gaffes. He's not great in space yet. I think he's gotten a little bit better. Um, He's hitting some threes now. Uh, He hit a couple. I I shouldn't say he's hitting threes now. He's shooting 29%. But that's better than, um, than previously. He just looks confident. He's been awesome as a pick-and-roll threat. Um, His screening has been so much better. Just overall, I mean, we're seeing the bench lineups have been a lot better recently, and part of that is Goga has been able to contribute to them being pretty good without having one of the bigs on court. And um, it's been impressive, to say the least. Uh, Believe it or not, when a player gets a chance to play, Good things happen. Who would have thought? Uh, you, you can't call somebody a bust when they've played less than 500 minutes. And, and I think Goga's over 500 minutes now, but people were calling him a bust when he was, you know, sitting at the end of the bench at the beginning of the year. And now look at, look at him. I mean, he's been, he's been fantastic. Um, so I've really enjoyed watching him grow and develop. Last thing I want to talk about is Miles. Um, Miles' defense has somehow taken, like, another notch up over this stretch. I mean, he's averaging four blocks a game in the last nine and that is not everything, but like, it's just an indicator to say, Hey, Miles is doing a lot of shit out there. Um, that's my very nuanced way of saying it. Uh, it's not just the blocks. And I, I, I'm planning on doing an article writing about his defensive player of the year case. I don't think he'll win it. And I don't know if he should, I think Rudy Gobert probably has a slightly bigger defensive impact, but I think miles would finish second for me this year. Um, he's been legitimately fantastic. And the problem is just the team defense isn't good enough for him to win it. If they were top five in team defense or top six or seven, I would say he had a better chance, but I just don't think it's going to happen based on how voting goes. But I actually think in some scenarios, hopefully no jazz fans listen to this. I think in some scenarios, 
Miles can actually be like he's not the same impact as a rib protector as, as Rudy Gobert. Let's just be honest. Like Rudy Gobert is fantastic. He's an amazing player. Um, but what Miles can do in terms of versatility, the way that he's able to cover a pick and roll two on one, his ability to sniff out plays, he's a great communicator from the back line. I think that has really improved for them for him this year as well. Um, like he's always been a solid communicator, but you can tell even like that's one of my favorite things about not having fans in the arena. Um, like, and I know that sounds so uh, not pessimistic, but like kind of snide of me. Like I just am not somebody who enjoys being in a packed arena. I like being able to hear what the players are doing or saying or thinking and hearing the coaching staff. Like that's the stuff I live for. I'd rather watch on my TV than in person sometimes because I, I feel like I can see more of that stuff. Miles uh, in some ways can be more versatile than I think a guy like Rudy Gobert can. And I think that's been huge for the Pacers. And we'll talk more about the defense because I think the defense doesn't always lend itself to helping Miles or anyone on the team, frankly. Um, but the issue is just Miles is not getting shots. Uh, he was – there was a point in the year where he was averaging like 14 or 15 points per game for like a 10 or 11-game stretch and was looking great offensively. And it's not that he's looked bad offensively. He's shooting really well, actually, 42% from three over the last nine, so since the All-Star break, on four attempts per game. But that's the problem. Like, why why is Miles only getting eight attempts? It's not even eight attempts, seven and a half. Um, it's really frustrating to watch, and I talked about this the other day um, on my post-game pod. Like, you can't have miles on a mismatch after having an amazing defensive stop and not find him on a mismatch in the post. Like he had Jerome Robinson posted up after running his ass off down the floor to get in position. And you could see how frustrated he was that he didn't end up getting the ball. And he of course relocated to the corner and spaced out. Cause he doesn't just, you know, like he doesn't just stand there in the post of the man ball and get a three second violation. But I know he's not a great post-up player. He's not an awesome individual scorer, but I just think he's been too good as a defender and what he does for the team and how much he defers to not give him those opportunities. And that's the one thing that I really hope to see change uh, as the season progresses. And something I'm more interested too is to see what happens when TJ comes back next year. Like how do you find the hierarchy of who's taking shots, who's handling the ball? Um, and that's another question that I have to answer today, but um I really think you got to find more looks for Miles because they were able to at the beginning of the year, and it was great for him. And he was doing a lot that was just positive um, as a cutter, uh, looked good as a role man. He really hasn't gotten a lot of opportunities to handle the ball. He's also, just to be frank, I mean, he has been a little bit hesitant shooting recently. And part of that feels like because he's not getting as many opportunities. Um, again, I'm not in his head. I'm not the coaching staff, so I don't know. But I think that's factored in. He just hasn't been – we're not seeing the drive game from Miles anymore. And I want to see more of that because it was such a big part of what he was doing at the beginning of the year and when the offense was humming and looking good. Like, it, you got to get Miles more involved offensively. I don't care if maybe it results in a couple more misses. Like, you just – you can't have 40 shots divested into two players. You you have to find ways to get Miles involved. Um, and I think part of that's going to be more with finding Karras – in the offense and, and him developing more uh, with more chemistry with everyone else on the team. Um, so that's going to send me into my first question, the mailbag uh, looking at, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I have like so many in here I'm looking. All right. Yeah. So this is from my guy, Anthony Childress, one of the OGs who has always supported um, 
major thanks, Anthony. Uh, if you guys don't follow him, he's a great dude. Uh, so what are your thoughts on whether or not the offense would be better with Levert being the primary ball handler with Brogdon playing more off ball? And my thoughts are pretty simple on that. I think as time goes on with this team, just given Karis Levert is not a great off ball player. Um, he's much better. It's been different this year, but over the last two years, he's been better as a, uh, as an off the dribble shooter than a catch and shoot player. Um, and I think that's something just based on how that works. That's probably going to hold up. Um, I think in some regards, he's a craftier ball handler than Malcolm. Like he's just, he's taller. He, he can see over defenses a little bit better. I think that he can maybe get a little bit more out of his drive game. He's got more shake to him with his handle. And that's not to say that Malcolm's like a bad facilitator or anything. He's really good. He's like a, he's like a one and a half instead of a one or a two. Um, but I think just getting Malcolm more opportunities to attack an already tilted defense, like we just talked about with his ability to finish at the rim, like, that's because he's not going to he's not going into the teeth of the defense. Like he's being able to attack somebody one on one after the defense has already been tilted. And that's huge for him. And that's where I think adding somebody like TJ, not to get ahead of myself, but like I, I think people underestimate how good this team will be with a healthy TJ Warren. Even with like I mean, if TJ takes like it's just back to being who he was before the bubble. Like that level of play finisher attacking a tilted defense, I, I don't think that can be underestimated. Um, instead of Justin Holiday, and I, I love Justin, he's great, but like having somebody who can attack a closeout because Justin really is not awesome at attacking closeouts. Um, TJ can score from anywhere when he gets the ball, and that just gives you so many more opportunities off of that. So point being, like I think it's going to take some time for Karras to really find more as the primary ball handler, and I think it's going to be a lot of um, – feeling it out. But ultimately we've already seen Levert kind of handle the ball a little bit more than Malcolm, at least when the team is playing well. Like I, I point to the, the Detroit game again, a lot of that was Karras carrying the offense and Malcolm playing off of that. And I want to see more of that because I think that is what is going to be the highest level for this. Because I mean, in Milwaukee, Malcolm was like one of the probably five best off ball players in the league, five or 10 best off ball players in the league. And uh, I really think that's going to be, his role more for this team. And I, he'll run bench units possibly. Um, I, I just think like that's, that's maybe where we're leaning towards. We've seen a lot more of Malcolm with the bench. Like we were seeing Malcolm and miles uh, that bench line together. Um, and they actually were solid in some stretches. Um, so that would be my answer on that. I'm going to answer a quick question from down below from Shrivan. Uh My guy, Shrivan, thank you for sending a question. Hi, Mark. What did you think of the latest NBA DPOY rankings? TJ McConnell is fourth. Love TJ McConnell. His, uh, his defense is fun. Um, the NBA.com DPOY rankings give me headaches. Uh, they had Jamal Murray up there earlier in the year. It just, like, again, Jamal Murray's a fun player, uh, but he's not. He, like, just in terms of actual impact, like, um, some of the statistics that they use and the reasonings just don't make a lot of sense. Like, TJ is solid when he's able to play against a guard his size or he's able to muck things up in a backcourt and full-court press people. But, like, if you ask him to guard – like, he guarded Jamal Murray when they played Denver and he got smoked. And it's not that he was out of position. He's just – TJ McConnell is listed at six foot one. I don't think he's actually six foot one to be completely honest. Um, he doesn't have a lot of wingspan. Like, he just can't contest shots that well. So, even though he's great positioning-wise, he should not be in the defensive player of the year rankings whatsoever. And I just kind of disregard that and um, cast that to the side, um, frankly. But I appreciate the question. Um, 
So getting into the next question that I have. Uh, so this is from uh, my guy, Div Bansali uh, from over at Stat Center. Uh, great follow on Twitter if you guys don't follow him already. Um, which player on the roster benefits the most from TJ Warren's absence? And is there anyone who suffers? Um, well, just to start off, I mean, number one, it sucks that TJ's out. And I don't think that Div was trying to say it's good that he's out because it's obviously not. Um you feel for the guy and just wish that he could play because I know TJ would want to be out there. Um, so, I mean, who suffers the most? It's an easy answer for me. I mean, I think TJ Warren suffers the most. Um, he had a real opportunity this year to build off of the greatest stretch of his career uh, in, you know, the 20 bubble games. Um, and he's not going to get that opportunity now. And he's a free agent uh, next year. So I, I maybe in some ways that's better for the Pacers, which I don't like thinking like that. Like I get uncomfortable with the stuff that happened with like Moses Brown this year, getting that uh, long-term deal that has, that's very small guarantees and just like minimal money. Um, it reminds me a lot of stuff with like baseball, like um, Kansas city gets lauded. There was this article from ESPN a couple of years ago about, um, and if, I, if I'm losing you guys with baseball, I promise this is going somewhere, but like, um, I want to say it was Jorge Soler that they signed the Kansas city Royal signed when he was like 16 to like a 10 year deal. Um, and it was just like a minimal stretch of money, but they saw enough talent in him. They were like, Oh, well he's going to end up being like this massive big player. So we're just going to pay him short now and try and get him in our system. And you just kind of like, it's just a really icky feeling. I don't know how else to talk about it. Like with Lou Dort got totally undersold. Like Lou Dort would, 100% be at least worth the mid-level right now. Um, I think part of it's on his agent that they signed that deal because, I mean, he signed like a four-year – like he's getting paid like a $1.2 million a year, if that. Um, and it's kind of just like I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable that we loud front offices for shorting players. And I get it. Like you, you want to talk about front offices being crafty and finding ways to spend money right. But at the same time, like – you got to do guys right. And I don't think that Oklahoma city did Lou Dort or Moses Brown, right. To be completely frank. Um, but that's just my opinion. I know some people would disagree with that. Um, so yeah, long story short, TJ Warren suffers the most from being out who benefits from TJ Warren. out? I mean, I think the easy answer is Ed Sumner. Um, if TJ Warren was, on the roster, I mean, maybe Sumner would have gotten minutes uh, because Aaron Holiday has really struggled this year. But overall, I mean, seeing T Ed, Ed Sumner again in the last 10 games, he's playing 14 minutes a game. He's had some games where he plays 20 minutes. Um, like his development into an actual NBA rotation player has been phenomenal. I mean, he went from last year looking just like still a project and he still has a lot to work on. And I think the three-point shot is unfortunately going to uh, stop falling at the rate it has been. Um, but regardless, like you wouldn't be getting this kind of development from Edmund Sumner and Goga if, if TJ Warren was on the roster. And I think I would, I would say Goga too. I mean, Goga definitely is, it helps his case that TJ Warren is out because I think you would see a lot less of the two bigs playing together. If TJ Warren was here, you'd see a lot more of TJ at the four. Um, so it would just make things murkier and there'd be less opportunity for either Goga or Ed. So that, that would be my answer to that question for sure. Um, that feeds into another question as well, uh, from at CT Fazio, good friend of mine who covers the Nuggets, uh, thoughts on Edmund Sumner's upside with the Pacers. Do you think he's a long-term fit for them? Um, this is an interesting question because 
Well, I'm pulling it up on Spotrack right now. I want to say, just to make sure, I, I think Ed has a team option at the end of this season. Um, hold on. I cannot type Ed Sumner to save my life. Um, but point being, like, I think he's in, in line to get paid this summer um, if that team option were not to be accepted. But, oh, no, he does not have a team option. I was wrong. Uh, he is an unrestricted free agent in – I am looking at – no, okay, he does have a team option. Yeah, he has a team option this summer, and they're definitely going to accept it because it's for $2.3 million. I think if he were to play this way the rest of the uh, the year, I mean, he's going to get paid like a decent amount. So I'm – I think that would, that's what I would say on Ed right away. In terms of his long-term fit, I mean, he has an opportunity to be like the first wing off the bench. Um like and I like that's obviously you have Doug, you have Justin Holiday. So okay, maybe not first one off the bench. I got a little bit ahead of myself, but like just play it the the role of like a really good eighth or ninth man and maybe matchup dependency he can play more. Like like we saw against Golden State, like um at the beginning of the year. That was huge. Him playing thirty minutes, running box and one on Steph Curry, like there are real opportunities for him to do that. And, and just having a player like Ed on the roster who's capable of going out and giving you different looks is important. Like I mentioned this uh, on the podcast after the Wizards game, as much as that game was pretty, eh, like a rough showing all around. Like Ed's athleticism in that game pops. I mean, he was the most athletic player in that game. Uh, that that uh, that one clutch dunk that he had, uh, I think it was Robin Lopez tried to try to block the block uh, Ed when he was going up, and he just uh, clutch faked it. Like he is the one guy on the team other than Paul George over the last decade who can do that. Um, and I think that that's something that really stands out to me and should stand out to a lot of people. Like it's not just the athleticism; it's that Ed has really put that athleticism together with skills because the athleticism is always shown for him. But what he started to show as a playmaker has been really a tantalizing to me. He's only averaging – he's averaging less than an assist per game over the last 10. And so I know on paper it doesn't seem like it. But he's doing stuff out of running pick and roll or even just driving to the basket and finding cutters or the big in the dunker spot is not stuff that he used to do. He used to just kind of not really have a plan going to the rim and would toss something up and it would be pretty rough. Like he'd have a lot of things that would hit the top of the backboard because – he is so out of control of his dribble and, and what he was doing into the rim. That development's been huge for him. It opens up more for playmaking and, and him pressuring the rim the way he can is like fantastic and fits right in line with what Nate Bjorkman wants the team to do. Um, so I'm really excited about Ed's future for the team. I don't know if there's really a, an opportunity for him to, to go too much higher in the rotation, but crazier things have happened. I, I mean, he's already surpassed Jeremy Lamb. Uh, as a player for the team, in my opinion. Um, I mean, I think Jeremy will get more opportunities to keep finding that just because of how much the team has invested in him. Uh, and at least until the off season, I don't know if they would trade him. Um, it's always possible for sure. But I think like I'm at the point where, and, and I'm sure Nate Bjorkman is too, especially over the last couple of games, like Ed should be playing more than Jeremy Lamb. He provides more on both ends in some regards. Um, so definitely – Look out for what Ed's going to keep doing because he's taking a big leap this year, and I'll, I'm interested to see what happens next year. Um, next question. So based on kind of based off that one, this was a comment that I saw on Indy Cornrows um, in uh, one of the articles I wrote. Uh, 
somebody said small markets can't afford to sink so much money into bench dudes with massive liabilities. And I think this is in regards to Doug McDermott. Um, first of all, I don't think Doug McDermott is as bad of a defender as people make out to be. Um, he is not a plus defender by any means. Um, he is not a good defender. He's, he's not very athletic. He doesn't have a big wingspan. Um, actually part of the reason he's such a good shooter is I think he almost has a negative wingspan. He's six, seven. I think he has like a six, seven or six, eight wingspan, which is small. Um, like for somebody his size, I should say, but he's really gotten a lot better at positioning. Um, he's good at chasing around screens. Like he's often tasked with guarding the other team's best shooter and he does a pretty good job of it. Um, it's when he gets matched up with somebody one-on-one that you see him get taken to the woodshed. And, uh, I get it. Like, it's not pretty. He's somebody who will get match punted in the playoffs for sure. Um, but at the same time, I just fundamentally disagree. Like, I understand the, the thought that small markets can't afford to sink money into quote unquote bench dudes with massive liabilities. But at the same time, I think like if you're a small market, you have to find market inefficiencies. And that's part of that is like finding guys like Doug McDermott or Ed Sumner, who you can develop. And um, not that, you know, Doug wasn't developed, but he was really just kind of like a stationary shooter in his stops before coming to Indiana. Um, And he really has developed his game into being a lot more than that. And you've seen him grow and blossom into being one of the most important place, players on the team. Um, so, you like, as a small market, I think you have to be able to find guys like that. And I, I agree you can't sink money into them. Like, you can't just pay a bench guy, you know, 11 or $12 million, million dollars a year unless they're a really quality player. Um, but I, I think it's a little bit overblown. Like, Doug has been so important for what the team does. And I know there are playoff concerns, but at the same time, there are reasons to believe that maybe those weren't completely fair. Um, but, I mean, all in all, I'm not sure uh, that I agree, but I understand the sentiment. Um, so next question. Also, yes, thank you, Alex. He is a uh, 6'9 and one quarter wingspan for, for Doug McDermott. Also, Blot, I will get to your question uh, at the end. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. So from Chris Carey, uh, what is Sabonis' ideal ceiling? I hope for him to be like Jokic, who is only two years older, but I think that might be far-fetched. Um, so I'm just going to say right away, that is far-fetched. Uh, n- no offense, Chris. Just Nikola Jokic is amazing. Like, he was doing more at age 24 than Domas is at age 24, just to be completely frank. Um, I also would point out, too, like – I'm somebody who always gets caught up on the, um, you know, will the team be, which team should the big go forward with? I still don't know an answer on that. Um, I think I know what I would do if I were KP, but I also am not KP, so it's not up to me. Um, but you bring up such a good point. Like, Demonis Sabonis is 24 years old. He's a two-time All-Star, no matter how much some people think he shouldn't have been an All-Star. I just fundamentally disagree with that. He was definitely worthy. There are a million worthy guys. I've talked on and on about that for forever, and I just hate the discourse. Um, point being, he's really, really grown. Like 
I think it's easy to look at what he does game in, game out, um, and kind of get lost in that and say, well, hey, what is it? What this is what he isn't doing. This is what he isn't. Let's think about what Demonis Sabonis was three years ago when he came to Indiana. Um, and we had no idea what to expect. Um, I mean, he had a terrible rookie year, and it wasn't his fault. I mean, Oklahoma City told him to be a spot-up four for them. First of all, cannot defend fours. Second of all, not a good shooter, um, at least, you know, relatively. Um, and he came to Indiana, became an awesome piece off the bench. Then he became a six-man-of-the-year candidate the next year, and then he became an all-star. Like, the the leaps and bounds that Domas has made as a player, as a facilitator, as a guy who can create his own shot a little bit, I still think that's where his most improvement is going to come from. Um, but, like, what he does to make the team better, I think it's lost a lot. Um, like, this team would be so devoid of any kind of playmaking uh, without Domas on the team. And I think it's easy just to watch him screen somebody open and think, okay, well, you know, anybody can set a screen. That's not true. Um, don't watch sets like just about the best screens in the NBA. Um, and more importantly, they're meaningful screens. Like he's great at his ability to rotate his hips to set a screen and then get open in the pick and roll is like fantastic. There are a lot of guys who can set screens, but then they take themselves out of the play because they're not athletic. Like they don't have the right athleticism or ability to rotate their hips and, and get into the lane and, actually create a good role to the rim like that is a that's a skill you know I, I think a lot of people think like oh well Domas just like he's a big lumbering guy um I don't know like what I would say his ceiling is I don't like putting a ceiling on people um but I do think like he could be he, he's very different from Jokic in a lot of regards like I think he plays a lot more uh physically like not that Jokic isn't physical but just like Domas's game is getting to the rim and uh being physical, getting offensive rebounds. Um, like even if he misses a shot, he's getting his offensive rebound more often than not. I think to answer Chris's question in like some kind of finality, I think the biggest thing for him is if he can get free throws. Um, and a lot of people will say that it's on the refs. I don't think it's on the refs. Like I do think there are cases where he should get free throws. Part of the problem is he just doesn't have verticality. Like to get free throws, you have to be in the air a lot of the time. Um, I think that's something that is important to look at. Like Jokic just had this issue too. He does not get a lot of free throws because he's not a bouncy athlete. Like those are the guys who are able to get free throws. You have to get into the air because that's where refs are going to see the most contact. Um, I don't know if that's something that can happen for Domas. I do think he could maybe work on some stuff that maybe gets him in some foul baiting a little bit. Um, and I know I, I hate foul baiting, but I don't hate players for it. I just hate that as part of the rule book. Um, I think the next stage for Domas outside of foul drawing, though, um, it's a good question. Like, I don't think the defense is ever going to be better. Like, I think he'll improve positioning-wise. He just needs to be in a better context. I don't think what they're doing defensively right now is good for Domas, and we've seen that. And I think he's done a lot to thrive in it and be better. Thrive real relatively, I mean. Like, like I, like I mentioned earlier in the pod, like his hands have been really active. He's finding ways to be impactful, but he's still – um, it's just putting him out of position a lot and it's not great for him. And I, I think a lot of heat has been put on him as a defender and it's just not really warranted. Um, so I would say that, but the, him finding a go-to shot is the biggest thing for his development because he really doesn't have one right now. Um, like he's tried to incorporate, eh, incorporate Jesus, incorporate that, uh, that like one footed fade away 
um, just inside the free throw line. Uh, and it looked good at the beginning of the year, and it has not fallen well recently. I don't have numbers on that. Um, but overall, like, that's the next stage. Like, him finding a go-to move. Like, um, it's not a great comparison because he's already a better player than than he was or is now. But, like, Jonas Valanciunas had the same thing when he was with Toronto. Like, um, he was good in the post, but he wasn't, like, great. Like, Domas is a good post scorer, but he's not a great post scorer. Uh, he's great – He's a great post facilitator and post player overall, but like he doesn't quite have, like I mentioned, like he doesn't have that go-to shot where he can generate separation from somebody. And it's harder to do when you're a big, to be completely fair. But that's the thing for him. Um, I do think he's going to, he's going to make another all-star team. He's 24 years old. He just made a second all-star game. I don't like, I just don't see why there's a cap on it. I don't understand why people have to look at him and say, He's the worst all, you know, the worst two-time all-star of all time, the worst all-star of all time. Like, I, I just don't see that at all. I, I don't like saying that about somebody. Like, he, he earned, he earned it, and he's made legitimate improvements this year. So I, I don't know what other people are watching or saying or thinking, but like, I watch the whole league. I do this. It's my job. I love doing it. Like, I just don't know how you. I, I get maybe not liking his style, but to to belittle his talent like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So, Chris, to answer your question. Um, I don't think he's going to be Nikola Jokic. I don't think he's going to be an MVP candidate. Um, but I do think he's a really damn good player now. He's going to continue to be for a while. And just given his work rate and what he does, he's going to only get better. Um, but a lot of it's just going to hinge on what he can do as an individual scorer. Because right now, there's just not a lot there in terms of his ability to create his own shot um, outside of um, – mismatches in the post or, or getting put back. So I'm interested to see how that develops for him because I think that's the next stage of his, his development personally. Um, and that feeds into another question um, from my guy, Daniel Ollinger, uh, does some great stuff over at Liberty Ballers. You should listen to his podcast uh, on the Liberty Ballers feed. Um, what do you think is Goga Bataze's future on this team, seeing as how two of Indiana's foundational pieces are more or less centers in Miles Turner and Sabonis? I like Goga coming into the draft, but that was a little perplexed about how the Pacers wanted to use him. You and me both, brother. Um, I remember thinking on draft day that Brandon Clark, as he continued to fall in the draft, was the perfect fit for the Indiana Pacers. Um, did not work out that way, and that's okay. I still think Brandon Clark would be a great fit on the team, but um, we've seen enough from Goga, and I've talked to enough people. Like um, I know people who had him in their upper lottery. Um, and he, he's shown that kind of talent and ability like already as a rim protector. I think the defense has been so impressive for me and what he's doing there. Um, I'm really interested to see how that continues to play out, but you bring up such a great point because I think about that all the time. Like, like I mentioned, Goga is a legit rotation player. And I think you could even argue more minutes for development. That's not going to happen on this team, but um, somebody, it's just like in boxing. Like I always bring it back to boxing is what I used to do when I was good at it. Like somebody's always got to go. It's like when you're watching a, a, a title fight or a prize fight or, or something for like a world title. Um, it's the same way how I feel looking at this Pacers roster. Like Miles Turner is fantastic. Um, I still think in some ways he's underrated. Demonis Sabonis, I feel the exact same way about um, because both guys get lauded for the things that they can't do instead of what they can. Um, and Gogo Bataze is a leg legitimately impactful young player with potential. Um, I don't know what that ceiling is. I do think he's going to be a starter at some point. 
Um, I don't know if I'd say he's going to be better than, than Domas or Miles, but again, I, I I don't know. He's 21 years old. I mean, he's younger than I am, and I'm one of the younger people who does this. So, like, uh, I have no idea what to think about what he's going to be. But regardless, we're not going to see it with Domas and Miles on the roster. Um, so I think what I lean into, for the most part, uh, what I tend to come back on is either this offseason or sometime during the year next year, I still think that one of the bigs is going to get moved. They tried to make something happen um, last offseason. I mean, they made it clear that they wanted to that – they think that – whether or not they want to say it, and I don't think they will ever say it outright. Like, I mean, KP is said it as much outright as you can without saying it. Like, but they were, you know, he thought Gordon Hayward was a player you can't not take a chance on, and that means giving up Miles or Domas. Um, and I think they'll they'll they're looking for those kind of moves. You know, they know if we can go out and get a wing or a forward, somebody who is going to raise the level of this team even more and make the team make more sense. They're going to do it, and that's going to involve moving one of the centers, undoubtedly. Um, so I think, ultimately, I think Goga is going to have a chance to develop on this team, be the first big off the bench, um, and really thrive in that role and start to develop and continue to develop as a player. Um, and, I, I mean, the team needs that kind of stuff. Like, I, the, Kevin Pritchard needs this draft pick to hit, and I, I think his, uh, his drafting has been hit quite a bit. I don't really need to talk about it that much. Um, I do think sometimes it gets a little bit annoying to talk about because they draft in a really hard spot. But again, that is, I wrote about it too earlier in the year. Like that is the next step for the Pacers is getting guys on rookie contracts who can contribute because that hasn't been a thing recently. Um, that needs to be something that's consistent. And I think Goga is going to be a real contributor on his rookie contract. And he already has proven to be, but it's just going to be once one of the centers gets, gets moved, so to answer your question in full, I, I think Goga does have um, does have a real future with the team, and we'll see what happens as, as years go on because um, things move fast in the NBA, man. Um, things can change within a week. I mean, we went from thinking this team was maybe a two or three seed with Victor Oladipo, you know, eleven games into the year, to hey, um, this team is below five hundred after trading for Karis LeVert because he had to go out with with injury, and understandably so, but like. Calculus changes really quickly in basketball. And I feel like I learn that more and more every week. And we just continue to see that. Um, so that's where I'm at with Goga. Um, hold on a second. I think I got one more question and then I'll take some of the comments. Um, from, from Billy Osborne. Uh, so you think this main core, Brogdon, Sabonis, Turner, and Levert could be poised for a real shot in two years if they all stay put, um, a long-term thing. Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, I think I've hit on this a little bit. Like I, I think also curious as to why you left TJ Warren out of that. Um, because I think TJ is to some extent the most important player on the roster. Um, just having a guy who's six foot eight, who can create his own shot and, uh, actually defend guys that size. We've seen how important that is. Um, so I would, I would bring that up, but in terms of what this team can do, I mean, I talked about this with my friend, Andrew Kelly earlier in the year. Uh, looking at the 14-15 Hawks, um, that's like the blueprint for this team. Being a team that is extremely deep, has four or five starters who are all above average um, because you're not going to have a star. Um, that's just the nature of what this team is. I always get sick of people saying this team needs to get a superstar. From where? Okay, 
where is this team getting a superstar? They're not going to tank. We know that. I would also say, why should they tank? You know, like there's something to being a quality team every year. I would like to see them personally be a lottery team this year because I think, like we mentioned with Goga, getting that kind of um, – getting a player who can contribute on their rookie deal is huge, is huge. Um, like you you have to have that. You have to be able to get guys to contribute on their rookie deal. Um, and finding a talent in the lottery would be huge. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see that. I do think this team can be a, a conference finals contender and you go from there, you know. Um, once you get there, you see what happens and, and who knows? Um, so that's my answer on that. Um, so that opens me up to the comments, but to that, I, uh, I get that. Um, Balat Guzman in, in the comments said, and, and been, been demolished by LeBron question mark with the, uh, the nervous face. I think it's a nervous face. If I can read my iPhone emojis correctly, I look, here's my thing. Uh, growing up in Cleveland, with uh, with LeBron James, uh, I want to say I was definitely privileged as a basketball viewer. Um, having the years when Earl Clark and Jared Jack are leading a team, um, it gives you a real appreciation for not being completely shitty at basketball, um, which maybe that's a really blunt way to put it. But I just think, like, being consistent is important. Like, you can't just – like a small market team cannot operate with the mentality of the Lakers. Um, like, Oh, I, I'm sorry, but I, I totally took it out of context. It's my bad, man. Uh, yeah, that, okay. Don't remind me about that. I love Paul Millsap. Paul Millsap is one of my favorite players of all time. Um, that team hurt to watch in the Eastern conference finals. I will, I will give you that. Um, but just in general, I mean, this, this brings up an important aspect of team building, like looking at Toronto, I am glad Toronto did not trade Kyle Lowry. I like, I think they had an opportunity to trade him. They didn't want to be lowballed. Um, there's something to being a consistent team year in, year out. And I know a lot will be brought up. I'm sure somebody will comment on uh, on this. And, Bilal, uh, I'm getting your questions. Give me a quick second. Um, I always get talked into t- talking about Tyler Wood Bust. Um, like Toronto and what they did for four or five years, they were always so close to being a team that was going to blow it up. And then they finally got the opportunity to, you know, collect themselves and go after Kawhi Leonard for a year and say, Hey, we're going to go all in for a title. Let's do it. And I think that's the Avenue for small market teams. Um, I don't like talking about small market. I mean, I don't like buying into small market mentality and all that. It's just real realistic. Like LeBron, Kawhi, um, Paul George, those guys don't come to your team. If you are in Indiana um, for the most part, like unless you are able to draft them, and even then, I still think talking about uh, tanking into the, into the draft is uh, it's not a it's not easy now. B it's just a, a waiting game that is kind of I don't want to say it's pointless, but like I, I really think you can do more for your team through development and just trying to be a competent organization year in year out. And you can you can build your way into a chance because you can't just go from being a twenty five win team in the lottery all the time to being a contender. And we've seen that with, with the 76ers and um, who else is a good example? Like even Atlanta has struggled with that since they, they tore down. Um, Like even with all the moves that they made, they're in a place now where they're capped out after the moves that they made in the last summer. And they're, I mean, they're a fine team. They still have a lot of room to grow, but it's just, it goes to show it's not that easy. Um, 
So that's that's what I would bring up. So to answer Balat Guzman's question, so hey Mark, after long years, Magic uh, has finally the Magic have finally embraced the rebuilding, which is logical considering the draft depth that this year. India is obviously not contenders. Um, what, why? Well, oh, gosh, I can't read. Why they try? Why they try to avoid soft rebuild? Just get a high pick this year. Um, so hard. I think this is a great point, Balat, because I advocate for them doing a soft rebuild this year personally. Um, I, it's a really tough double-edged sword on this because I know that Kevin Pritchard wants to see them in the playoffs. Um, I know that they want to see this group work together in the playoffs, but I also agree like, um, with how good this draft is, like there's a legitimate chance if you go into the playing game. So like say Indiana finishes ninth or 10th and they're out of the playoffs, um, after losing a playing game or something, um, they could draft like. Maybe they get seventh or eighth in the lottery and they can get a guy like Zaire Williams who's going to go lower or Moses Moody, like a legitimately impactful wing who is going to be like a fantastic player on their rookie skill deal, could grow with the core and develop. Like, uh, like as much as I just talked about wanting to be a consistent team, it's different because with – I almost think it would be good for this team to miss the playoffs to an extent. Like you just – the opportunity to draft somebody – that is going to be around for this entire core as they develop and work together towards the playoffs. Like, I just think that would be huge. Um, I think it's going to be really tough to, uh, to warrant that. I know how frustrated fans already are with where the team is at, even though they're still not that bad. Um, I just implore people to watch Detroit or Minnesota play with, with how bad they seem to think the Pacers are. Um, but yeah, a lot. I, I agree with that. I would like to see that happen. I just don't think they're going to do it. Um, uh, potentially, I mean, it could happen. Um, but I, they've just been good enough with Karis LeVert and, and how they're looking post-All-Star break, and they'll probably get a little bit better. It's just not going to happen, most likely. Um, but I'd like to see it happen because I love this draft class, like you're mentioning. Like, the draft class is fantastic. Um, there are so many high-level contributors in this class that I think are going to really do some things for teams uh, in a positive way. Um, but I'm not sure, man. I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what Kevin Pritchard is going to do. Um, I don't know what the team's going to do. But I, I think I would definitely lean towards if I were the front office, I'd say, hey, let's just play 11 or 12 guys deep. We probably missed the playoffs this year by a hair. Maybe we're in the playing game. Um but I do think you give yourself a better chance for the future if you, you do get the opportunity to draft uh, top 12 or something this year. Um, if you guys have any other questions, I have a couple more minutes before I want to get out of here. Um, but other than that, that, that wraps it up for me today. I appreciate all the questions uh, that you guys sent me on Twitter and also uh, down below as well. Draft prospects I want in Indy from Alice Wolf. Let me pull up Tankathon really quick because I don't necessarily agree with Tankathon because he doesn't think Cade is number one, and that is blasphemy. Um, I mean, the number one would be – Cade Cunningham would literally be the perfect player in Indiana, but he'd be the perfect player on, like, all 30 NBA teams, so why do I even say it? Um, oh, yeah. Okay, so I did my first lottery soon, and Indiana goes 12th, which is not perfect, but um, – in terms, like, okay, so what does the team need? I guess would be the first thing you look at when you're talking about draft prospects, right? And I'm going to start doing draft profiles soon now that the college season is over. 
Um, and I like doing draft work. I mean, I've been keeping up with draft stuff, uh, not as watching as many games, but I've been uh, obviously keeping up with things in general. Um, Franz Wagner is interesting. Um, like, I like Franz Wagner, but I don't really know what he does for the team in terms of creation upside. Like, um, he's a really nice team player, a really good team defender, uh, and he can shoot. But, like, again, I would rather swing on somebody who could maybe create, has higher upside to create for a team. Um, Like, in terms of where the Pacers would be drafting, so, like, if they were able to draft from, like, say, 7 to 14. um, So that takes basically anybody, all the top five consensus guys would be out. So that means no Cade, no Evan Mobley, no Jalen Suggs, likely no Jalen Green or Jonathan Kaminga, um, probably not Jalen Johnson. I, I don't even know. Uh, enough about some of these guys to have like awesome opinions on them yet. Um, James Booknight's really interesting to me. I don't think that he's going to be a high level creation guy, but I do think he's going to be a high level scorer. Um, Keon Johnson, I just based on what I've been hearing and from what I know, um, not really what they'd be looking for. I think Moses Moody would actually be perfect. Like that is my ideal guy. Uh, if the Pacers were to, um, to draft, like if, if, if the Pacers could draft in the lottery this year, I would hope Moses Moody falls to them because they really don't have a high level point of attack defender. I don't think they're going to be able to draft high enough to get somebody with a lot of creation upside. Um, so I think that's what I would say. Like if they were in the lottery, it would definitely be Moses Moody because he can shoot. He's a smart passer. He can do a lot. Uh, that's just positive on the court. And I love his game. He's unfortunately had a really poor tournament, but um, that would be interesting to me. Another guy, so if they if they end up finishing, like, the five or six seed and they have, like, the 20th pick, I will call Kevin Pritchard. I don't have his phone number, but I will find it, and I will call Kevin Pritchard every day to tell him that he should get Terrence Shannon Jr. if they have, like, the 20th pick. Um, like, Terrence Shannon Jr., is, he's very raw, like, extremely raw. He's probably the guy I've watched the most of this year. Um, but in terms of what he could bring defensively and athleticism wise, like, Oh my God, he'd be amazing for this team. He's not like the biggest, but I think he gets profiled as a wing a lot, but just based on his, what his athletic profile is like, I mean, he's like six, six with like a six ten or six eleven wingspan somewhere around there. Um, but he's big. He's listed at two ten. Uh, no way. Terrence Shannon Jr. is like 230 or 240. Uh, he profiles a lot more as like a 3-4 to me than a 2-3. Um, his handle's a little bit iffy. His shot isn't quite there yet. Um, but I think in terms of a guy with real athleticism and real intuition on the defensive end already, and somebody who's going to go out there and defend the best players on the court any given night, like he's somebody who I would swing on uh, later on. And yeah, you bring up great points as well, Bulat, in terms of um, Zaire Springer and Book Knight. Like Springer is interesting to me too. Uh, my friend Ben Pfeiffer is a huge fan of of Jane Springer. I, I would be interested in him here as well. I need to watch more on him. And Moody is kind of a typical Indiana guy, but I just think like in terms of with the team trying to win right now and what they're trying to do, I think he would fit in pretty well um, and still has enough upside that you, you could definitely warrant taking him. Um, Another question from Balot. What is the biggest need for the Pacers to fill in the draft? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I just hit on that. It's a point of attack. Point of attack uh, and, and of course, on-ball creation. Always, always on-ball creation. 
Like, I think just any team, honestly, like if you have a chance to get someone who can create on ball, create their own shot, like just get it um, and then figure it out later. Um, another question from Alex. What are your thoughts on drafting position of need versus drafting the best overall talent? Um, I think it's like, not to cop out, but I think it just really depends on the team and what you're doing. I don't really think you should ever draft for position of need. Um, I really think that it should be a lot more over finding the best talent and the guy who you're most confident that you can develop into the best that they can be. Um, maybe that's a really corny way of looking at it, but I just think you you can't – one of my biggest issues and some of the, the stuff I've had an issue with with this year's team is looking at, like, I, the best coaches – and this is not to say that, that Nate is a bad coach. Nate is a – I think Nate's a quality coach. is a lot to figure out in terms of what he's uh, what he wants to run and how he wants things to run. Um, but I think the best coaches adapt to their talent instead of adapting talent to their system. Um, and I think part of that's difficult. And again, this caveat, because they're, they're not practicing. They've practiced like 10 times this year. So you really have no idea uh, what to think in terms of, you know, uh, in-season developments, how things have changed up with uh, the way that they're playing or schemes and everything. Like you can't change that in the middle of the season without, without practice. Let's just be real with ourselves there. Um, but I do think like, I want to see things change next year or if there is some kind of break because just a lot of what is asked to do of the roster just doesn't make sense for the roster in some regards, especially defensively. That, that's where I want to see things change. Um, so th- that's just answering your question overall. It's always about the best overall talent and you have to adapt. You have to adapt to the talent. You shouldn't make talent adapt to the scheme. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, why would you force something that's already really good to to do something just the total opposite? Like, we're not even the opposite. It's just like I look at Indiana's defense from last year, without real changes in the talent. Like, obviously, you don't have um, T.J. Warren, so that makes a difference. But like, you had the th- you know. Third-ranked defense, and no, sixth-ranked defense last year, third-ranked the year before. But, like, you have a top five, six finish two years in a row in defense, and then you completely overhaul the scheme with the same roster. I that That's – like, I get wanting to mix in different things, but that's the kind of thing that's been frustrating for me. I've really liked what they've done offensively. So that's why I, I'm, I, I think people have been a little bit too critical of Nate in some ways. Like, he's done a lot offensively that has made sense and been good for this team. But defensively, I just I have not completely understood why they've decided to go to this multiple scheme with a lot of junk defense that doesn't necessarily cater to what they do best. Um, and Miles has been awesome this year, but I think it's better for him to be in a more conservative scheme too. Like I think a lot of it's been like some people are like, oh, well, it's the scheme. And I'm like, no, I think a lot of what's been awesome for Miles this year, his activity has just been insane. Like what he's been able to do – in terms of just his overall disruptiveness, his, his ability to be locked in and engaged defensively, like it's just different from last year. It's not the scheme to me. Like maybe the scheme helps a little bit with him getting some steals um, and just playing uh, a little bit more aggressively. But like overall, like I think maybe maybe some of the numbers would be different, but he would probably be having the same kind of impact in last year's defense. So I don't know with that. Um, so. Last two questions. Uh, one from Steven SUI. Should the Pacers move some of the guards in the offseason for wing depth? Uh, so Aaron Holiday and Jeremy Lamb. And I would say yes. 
and I would say lean more like forward depth. And I, I guess wings forwards, it all gets kind of interchanged. But like getting a guy who's like six foot seven or six foot eight that can defend, you know, in some circumstances, like two through four. Like obviously, you're not moving for a guy like Harrison Barnes because that's too much money, and that's not enough to move for him. Um, but like somebody like that, somebody who can shoot, dribble, pass, and defend uh, a couple of positions. Like yes, the Pacers should definitely do that. They have too many chefs in a kitchen and it was one way to put it. I hate that analogy. It was the only point being like, there just has to be something there, like in terms of um, a marginal move that improves, improves your margins uh, by, by finding some ways to do that. Uh, I love this last question um, from Balot. Uh, last question. You got to choose one Conway, Benny or Gibbs. The people listening who do not know, that is Conway the Machine, Benny the Butcher, two members of Griselda, um, one, probably one of my favorite rappers going around right now. They're much better than Migos or a lot of the mainstream crap, so you should listen to them. It's not for everyone, just kidding. You listen to what you want to listen to. Um, and then Freddie Gibbs, who is just amazing. Um, for me, Conway is just a tier below Benny and Gibbs for me a lot. Like, Benny and Gibbs are so good. Um the Benny and Gibbs album with Alchemist is happening and I am ecstatic. Um, I think right now, like if we're doing in terms of right now at this moment, I've listened to more Benny the Butcher than anyone else over the last three or four months. But if we're doing on total dis- discography and just like everything in general, it'd be Freddie Gibbs. Freddie's so good. Like I love Freddie Gibbs. He's so good. Yes, Sebastian. I I'm not. I can't really repeat that on pod, but I full, fully agree. Freddie Gibbs is just a monster. Like, also, he is just wild on Twitter. Like the stuff that he does on Twitter is so insane to me, man. Uh, but yes, that would. Uh, in closing, that would. Uh, that would be how I how I close everything out. Conway is great. I do. I do like Conway. He's got good charisma. Um, it depends on the day for me too. With. Uh, Gosh, I, I'm I'm totally blanking right now, um, which is how I can tell I don't listen to him as much as Conway and Benny. Um, oh, my God. I, I promise I listen to Griselda every day. Like, I know who the third member of Griselda is right now, but I'm just – I can't think. Um, but his voice is just so nasally, and I just, like, I don't love it. And he, his ad-libs are kind of annoying. But, yes, West Side Gun. Oh, my God. I, I I can't believe that I didn't have that off the top of my head. I did not sleep a lot last night, so give me credit. Um and Alfredo is great. Alfredo should have won album of the year. Um, Grammys are rigged anyways. So Pray for Paris was amazing. I'm sorry. I'm not closing this podcast. We'll talk about that for a minute. Sebastian Mina, Pray for Paris was my album of the year. Like, I liked Alfredo. I thought Pray for Paris was even better. Like, uh, 327 with Joey Badass was probably my most played song this year. Like, the beat is amazing. Um Everything about that album was so, so good. Like, I just, the Grammys are dumb. It's just like the all-star voting, pretty much. Like, um, you you have guys who could be getting all-star votes, and they decided to give, um, you you decide to give the Grammy to Tyler, to, I mean, to, to Alex Caruso anyways. Um, that's, how, that's how it feels to me with the Grammys. And Alex Caruso's a nice player, but, like, you get the point. Um, and, yes, Tyler, the creator on that album was just, oh, my God. He was so good. But guys, I got to go. Thank you so much for coming on and, and, and sitting here and listening to me. I, I appreciate it. Um, I had a great time. Uh, I'll have this pot up probably tomorrow morning. Uh, but thank you again. 
to everyone listening, thank you for listening over at the Indy Cornrows podcast. Uh, we'll be back with more of these. We do a mailbag pod every week. Uh, send me any questions, comments, concerns, anything. I hope you don't have any concerns. Um, and just have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening.